Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Hi. Uh, We have a little bonus episode for everybody stuck indoors right now. So this episode was originally recorded as our very first Patreon bonus special. Um, Probably, I want to say maybe a year and a half ago um, when we didn't really know what the hell we were doing. So we're going to re-record it fully right now for you. Um, So patrons, if you have listened to this episode before, um, it will still feel a bit different and this is purely just a one-off to help everybody uh, adapt to being indoors a lot more right now so with the two-parter that we released on Wednesday this week and this episode which will be out Friday today perhaps if you're listening to it straight away um, that will be three episodes for your ears this week as a thank you as well um, for everybody's continued support. We're just so nice aren't we? (laughs) Well speak for yourself. (laughs) So this story is a tale of antisocial behaviour and a hate campaign that lasted for years and it's the sort of crime that really chills me to my bones because it could so easily happen to any of us and it's a case that I think I've referenced a number of times ever since we recorded this patron episode. You definitely have, yeah. Well, you have, because obviously it was a case that you recorded and, and research, uh, sorry, that you researched and wrote. Um, so you're, you're more familiar with it, but yeah, you've definitely talked about it. And we both have a little bit over, um, the last 70 episodes in, in a couple of them for sure. Christ, 70 episodes. I think we are up to 70. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that. We might release a lot of episodes. Uh, Whether we've come that far is another matter. So this case takes place in the late 2000s when there was a rise in gang-related crimes, especially gangs of youngsters. And groups of teenagers are pretty scary, aren't they? Because this group of five specific teenagers were particularly terrifying, especially to Gary Newlove, who they terrorised for months before savagely murdering him in cold blood. Gary Newlove was born in Lancashire in 1959. He married Helen Marston in 1986 and they had a happy marriage together until his death. Gary and Helen were humble people. They honeymooned in a caravan in Wales because they couldn't afford a honeymoon abroad and they worked really hard throughout their lives. Gary was in sales and Helen was a legal PA and in 2004 they could afford to move with their three daughters to a new build house in Warrington which they wanted to make their family home. The house was on a quiet residential street and their new neighbours were chatty and invited each other to barbecues on summery weekends. Sounds like the dream, doesn't it? That does. That sounds perfect. Especially nowadays, like you could have a barbecue in your garden and talk to your neighbours as long as you're at least two metres away, couldn't you, over the fence? I know, aren't we so lucky? I mean, we are lucky actually that we've got gardens, to be fair. I suppose. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it's so difficult. I think I just wanted to kind of say at this point as well, mm. um, I'm pretty sure that during this episode, I was talking about that film, Eden Lake, mm-hmm. where a group of teenagers basically terrorize a couple that um, they're on their honeymoon. They decide to go camping near a lake hence the title of the film, um, kind of on the edge of a woods and they just get terrorised by this group of teenagers and it's the most disturbing film I've ever seen. You go on about this film a lot, Mark. Um, 
I know, well, to be honest, I've probably talked about it in loads of episodes yeah. um, because it stayed with me. Mm-hmm. And I think you were right, though, at the beginning of this episode when you've said that a group of teenagers can just be so terrifying. And that's that's what I found to be the case in that film. And it was based on true events. But mm. when it's people that are like their children, they're like 13, 14, and they can still cause so much chaos and violence, it is just weird. It's just all that harder to take, isn't it? It is. It's really scary. So a lot of people describe the town, which is in Cheshire, as having a country feel rather than a city, even though it does have a population of around 200,000. Residents have been described as old-fashioned folks who have time to say hello and stop to chat in the street, which is quite nice. Yeah. Because it had this great sense of community, Warrington was attractive to young families. But as with anywhere, there were downsides to any good points. A lot of people felt like the police didn't pay enough attention to the area. One quote I read about this case was that the police in Warrington area felt like they didn't have the time, the resources or the infrastructure to provide the support that they would like. And this quote came from the father of a girl who was abused by the local teens that we're going to describe later on. Her father was a police chief working in a different area and he said this after the attack on Gary. An area close to the New Love family home that was a worry for residents was the concrete subway at the end of the road. The New Loves had been in their house for about a year and a half when they noticed groups of kids had begun hanging around in the subway and leaving litter. To begin with, the family wasn't too worried by this as they figured it was quite normal for kids to want somewhere to hang out. And also they had, as a family, been through things that felt like more of a big deal in the past. For example, Gary had been diagnosed with stomach cancer in the early 90s and had undergone a five-hour operation to remove his stomach and spleen. And this surgery had left him in intensive care for three days and affected him greatly. So that kind of puts messy or noisy teenagers into perspective, doesn't it? Yeah, of course. I mean, health is always the most important thing, as we know more than ever right now. But mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I suppose for them it would be, you know, they've got through a lot as a family and you just kind of write it off as just kids being antisocial. It happens everywhere. Yeah. But after a while, what was a slight annoyance at the beginning really turned into a, a real issue for them. It began with the mess getting worse and then beer bottles and cans were added to the mix. And the locals soon realised that the teenagers were not just hanging around, they were underage drinking. And this soon progressed to smoking drugs in the subway too. The gang's behaviour became more and more antisocial. On one occasion, a young lad was having a wee up a fence and Gary Newlove told him to stop. The response, he was told to fuck off. I feel like we laughed about him having a wee up a fence last time, but... It's just just, gross, isn't it? And also, I don't feel we can laugh about it. It's not funny. It's gross. Maybe that shows how much we've moved on. Oh, have you matured, Mark? No. (laughs) Quite often, cars in the street were damaged through the night, but the police wouldn't come out if they were called, stating it was only criminal damage and the victim should just report it. When Gary asked the kids to get off a car bonnet one time, they responded with, fuck off, you specky-eyed fucker, get inside or we'll come and shag your wife. And it is almost... Very grown-up. Exactly. These guys are 14-ish, all of these kids. So it is a bit comical at first, but then you have to remember this story ends with Gary Newlove dying in the street at their hands. This is the, I'm looking at my script of what we talked about last time and how I'd written this episode last time. And this is the bit that I think I've definitely referenced again, because this reminds me of the episode of Peep Show with David Mitchell's character. And he's scared to get off the bus after work and goes mental at those kids. 
I've oh, I remember been, you saying that yeah. before. Yeah, I've always been on his side because they are actually really intimidating and scary. Yeah, I think we've all been in those situations where we've seen like a gang of kids, um, whether it's on public transport transport or whatever, and you just almost like don't want to walk past them because mm-hmm. you know you're going to get a shitload of abuse for something, yeah. even though it's complete bollocks and they're just little brats. But it's still, you just don't really want it, do you? Exactly. Helen Newlove has since described the issues that they had, explaining that the locals would go to resident meetings to discuss their concerns, but there was not really anything they could do about it. And on one occasion, the very kids they were talking about banged on the windows of the meeting place to intimidate them and to show that they just weren't bothered by these adults that were trying to stop them. The beer bottles and cans littering the floor of the subway soon made way for bottles of stronger alcohol brands and the levels of aggression from the group also really rose. Parents in the streets soon stopped their children from going to the shops at night. And to be honest, I'm sure there's quite a few adults who would have just stopped going to the shops as well. And I am really lucky around where I live that the shops don't have that sort of issue. But there's loads of places where that's so normal. The group I of love kids going to the front. shops by yours. I always used to go <laughs> um, go there and like get anything I needed or a little drink before we recorded. Obviously, we're recording separately now because mm-hmm. of, of all this Social shit. Social isolation. But... Mm-hmm. socialized salation yeah but yeah i think it is really common isn't it this sort of gang of a teen gang of teens out the front and asking if you can buy them alcohol yeah. or fags or whatever yeah so the main ringleader of this group was adam swellings i remember him now that i've remembered that name Ugh, i didn't like him he was a 19 year old who ruled the gang of teenagers and he encouraged the binge drinking and antisocial behaviors in the subway his nickname was swelled and he and the other boys thought nothing of beating up anybody that crossed them what a fucking loser though 19 years of age and he's hanging and out with he's... 14 year olds getting them yeah alcohol. what an absolute dickhead mm-hmm those he's the sort of guy that would have laughed at me at school when I was in the homework yeah. room at lunchtime on my own with no friends. Oh, well, don't Mark. Now I'm driving a Jag and he's probably in prison, so fuck you. Exactly. The number of kids that were hanging out did change on a nightly basis, but Swellings was always the main man, impressing the younger boys with his talks of drinking and drug taking and tales of mindless violence. Even when he was sober, he was a bit of a twat, but after drinking or taking drugs, he turned into what people have described as a monster. This cemented his role model status for the younger gang members. I just cannot imagine what goes through the minds of these kids that join gangs, and I remember we talked about this as well, because... I just can't imagine my mum and dad brought us up to have our friends and to come round and that sort of thing. And we were really encouraged to think of the impact that our actions would have on other people. And what is going on in your mind when you think that hurling abuse at a stranger in the road is fun? Yeah, but I mean, for me, like we were brought up well and a lot of kids don't have that fortunate set of circumstances Mm -hmm. they could have you know one parent other parents in prison or they could have parents that just don't give a shit about them and are getting drunk and drugged up all the time so I suppose in Swellhead what they were looking for was almost like a father figure or somebody to look up to a role model Um, he was easily available and um, that's why they kind of gravitated towards him I guess that's such a really interesting point yeah so one night, a local man called Steve Ormanrod was attacked when he went outside to investigate some noises. The gang threatened him, and when he challenged them, two teens marched towards him in a very threatening way. They went to punch him, so he took a swing back at them, and he ended up on the floor. 
They began to kick him on his arms and his head, laughing as they did so. Steve actually didn't report this incident because he felt like the police wouldn't care about it or do anything to help him. The group would smash windows and start fights with anyone. They didn't care if the person they attacked was a man, a woman, old or young. They just loved to strike fear into anyone that they saw. One of the victims of the gang was a 17-year-old girl. Swellings had assaulted one of her friends and so she had given evidence against him at the trial. She then took out a restraining order to protect herself from Swellings, who had threatened to kill her. However, this did nothing to deter him and he would wait outside of her at school when she left to go home. Threatening that he would get her, in inverted commas, Swellings chased the girl into the school grounds and he would lie in wait and it got so bad that she was terrified to leave her home. After about three months of this abuse, Swellings did manage to get hold of her and he punched the girl in the face, yelling, that's the least of what you're going to get. What was the motivation for that? Mm-hmm. Because she's so given, given evidence against him. It's horrendous. Oh, I, missed, I forgot that bit. Sorry, I, you did <laughs> Someone's say. Someone's listening yeah. carefully. I, of course. Um, I'm not saying she deserved to be punched in the face then, but it's, it does kind of make more sense. It makes more sense why he decided to do it, but it's still disgraceful, isn't it's it? It's still ridiculous, yeah. Absolutely. And it gets worse because shortly after he punched her in the face, the whole gang beat her up, kicking and punching her and saying they were going to kill her. On the 10th of August 2007, the gang had been on a seven-hour drinking binge. Just a normal Tuesday for Mark. That, oh, did you have that in the script? <laughs> I actually didn't. You just, so you've just added that in just now. Added Who that the in fuck now. do you think you are? Me? Yeah. <laughs> Only I'm allowed to take the piss out of my co-host. I did actually have um, seven, yeah, it would have been a seven-hour drinking binge two Wednesdays ago after work. So it's not a typical Tuesday afternoon, more a typical Wednesday, actually. I was just counting on my hand to see what time you would have finished drinking. That's only midnight. That's not too bad if you finished work at five. Yeah, it was kind of like a five till midnight binge. That is actually ridiculous, though. Did you have any dinner? Uh, yeah, went out for dinner, had oh, dinner, good. had oysters. Oh. Um, it, yeah, it was a fancy dinner, and then we just carried on, and it was obscene. I think, I don't know what time I got home, but yeah, it was after midnight, and then I went and did a day's work the next day. Oh, I'm very proud of you. Well done for still going to work. Wow. So anyway, no their choice. drinking binge was nowhere near as fancy as yours. They would have just been necking vodka and cider in a subway. The gang had attacked a young man with learning difficulties. And then they moved on to vandalising cars in the street outside the new love home. So very different to your night. Gary's daughter Amy, who was aged 18 at the time, had called down to her dad when she saw the kids kicking her mum's car and vandalising their neighbour's digger. He went outside in his bare feet to ask them to stop. Amy and her sister Zoe watched out of the window as he approached the group, saying, can you just stop, you know, vandalising cars, etc.? And horrifically, his daughters were then witnesses to a sudden and brutal attack. The group rushed at their father, punching and kicking him to the ground. Fueled by drunken aggression and outnumbering him greatly, the gang kicked New Love like a football, so hard that there were trainer imprints left in his skull. One boy's trainer actually got lodged under his body. I remember that from last time. And I remember the sort of trainer imprint on the skull. Oh. Um, just like violence at its absolute worst. Mm-hmm. It's, I think I said it recently, but it's almost worse when people are physically attacked in that way rather than stabbed or shot because it's like a really brutal, sustained attack. Mm-hmm. It just bothers the shit out of me. Swellings had thrown the first punch and he was egged on by others who had shouted, 
do him, Swellard. After the assault, the youths simply walked away, leaving Gary Newlove in the street. He sadly never regained consciousness and he died two days later in hospital. The police were soon able to arrest three boys on suspicion of the attack. So Adam Swellings, who was aged 19, Stephen Sorton, aged 17, and Jordan Cunliffe, who was just 16. It was discovered that Sorton had delivered the fatal blow to Carrie Newlove and it was his trainer that had been left under the body. The police also arrested a number of other children, two of whom were taken all the way to the court case, but these three are the only members of the gang who were sentenced for Gary's murder. It has been reported that on the night of the murder, Adam Swellings had drunk four litres of cider and had smoked five spliffs. At the time, he was also on bail for two offences and he was banned from Warrington. Sorton had drank ten bottles of Stella and three litres of cider and... I think I'd put in something here about not even being able to walk after that much alcohol, let alone kick somebody. And I would say, yeah, and how are they affording all this alcohol? But they're probably mugging people and like robbing houses and stuff. So yeah, or stealing from their mum and dad's purses and stuff. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. So Cunliffe hadn't actually killed New Love, but he was sentenced under a law which is known as guilty by association. Disgustingly, Cunliffe, at the time that I wrote this episode, he was still trying to appeal his sentence because he hadn't actually kicked or punched Gary Newlove. But considering he bragged to other gang members later that day, we've just banded a man and he's not moving, I still feel, my opinion at the time was, he's still just as involved and I still feel like that. That's interesting because I can't remember what I said at the time, but now I kind of, I might have thought this at the time, but my thinking is... You know, if he didn't actually cause any physical harm, can he be charged with essentially the same crime as the others that did? Mm. I don't know. Like for me, that doesn't sit quite right. But, you know, I'm not saying he should get away scot-free. He was there. Mm -hmm. He could have stopped it. And he's bragged about it and stuff. But actually, if you look at it, what what has he specifically done? However, I, you know, I don't, I'm fortunate enough to have never had somebody in that situation that I love. So, Mm. um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure the family feel very differently. I think it's really similar to um, Forrest's death that we covered recently because whether or not Alex like purposefully murdered him, she was there when it happened and she did nothing to try and save him Mm, if you don't think she's a murderer. So it's almost a bit like that, isn't it? And it's just really sickening that just none of these teenagers showed any remorse. On the 11th of February 2008, at Chester Crown Court, Judge Andrew Smith sentenced the boys to life imprisonment. However, this didn't really mean life in reality, as their minimum sentences were 17, 15 and 12 years for the ages that they were. So um, Adam Swelling, 17 years, Stephen Sorton, 15 years, and then also Jordan Cunliffe, 12 years. So Swellings could, in theory, be out of prison by his mid-30s if he behaved, etc., yeah, which is weird. You know, that's like my age now. Yeah. Um, and he'll have, you know, served his sentence and... He's still got his yeah. life ahead of him. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. At 30, 36, 37, yeah. Gary Newlove's family and friends were really outspoken about this, along with the national papers at the time. And since the trial of Gary's murder, Helen Newlove campaigned using newspapers, most notably The Sun, to demand more support for victims of crime wanting to clamp down on gangs, and she wanted criminals to receive longer sentences. She also spoke out about wanting to bring back the death penalty for murder. Now, 
I remember we had a really interesting conversation at the time about this and we recently had a conversation on social media as well about the death penalty. It's such a difficult one, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I'm sure we've talked about it in episodes since as well. Um, and I can't remember where you stand on it now. What's your thinking around it? I've just remembered the episode. So the episode, I can't remember the number. I'll try and find out and I'll put it into the notes. But um, the episode where we looked at a historical case and we talked about capital punishment throughout the history. That was the I episode. Don't, I don't really remember that. It was, oh, it was ages ago now, back last summer. However, we'll find it and we'll we'll reference it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll pop a link on social media as well. For me, there is just too much risk that someone gets convicted of something that they're innocent of to warrant having a death penalty. So I'm I'm yeah. against it. I'm for, uh, for some cases, I do wish that we did, but you can't pick and choose, so I have to be against it. Mm. I um I'm always against it. I, again, for similar reasons, I don't think. Um, you know, there's that danger that somebody could be convicted and killed, uh, and then it subsequently comes to light that they weren't guilty, and I, I think that's awful. Um, and also, I, I'm just like a real firm believer that you just can't take anybody's life, um, even if they've you know done wrong. I just, I just really am against it. However, I always say when I talk about it, I once again, as I've just said, I'm fortunate enough that I've never had a family member or loved one or whatever. Uh, been you know murdered by somebody because if if that did happen to me maybe I would think very differently like the new loves Mm -hmm. I think for me if if it was I can make all the decisions certain people for example the Moors murderers I hate the idea of the public paying for people to be in prison when we know that what they did was so evil Mm. You just can't pick and choose the cases. So I'm not against it for certain people, to be honest with you. But but it has to be a, a, a ruling that you could make against any crime. So yeah. Almost a bit like, you know how we have like a whole life tariff mm-hmm. in this country? Um, so we can commit somebody to prison for the rest of their natural life mm-hmm. and there's only you know i don't know what it is like 60 or 70 people currently serving a whole life tariff in this country so it's the the worst punishment we have right now so yeah i sort of get what you what you're saying because it's almost like we could have the death penalty um as almost like the the layer above a whole life tariff and it would only apply to you know very extreme crimes mm-hmm. so worst I'm kind, of the I worst. yeah i kind of understand your your logic there mm. um i still don't don't wouldn't want to see it brought in but i do i do understand where you're coming from for sure mm. so helen newlove also campaigned for better binge drinking controls so wanting to work with bar staff and managers as well as staff in shops who were involved in the sale of alcohol She has also highlighted the lack of support that families of victims receive after they lose a loved one. So not just in murder cases, but in road accidents, etc. In November of 2008, she set up New Love Warrington. This was a charity that had three aims to inspire people to lead a more purposeful life, motivating people to enrich their lives and finally providing opportunities for positive interaction within communities. And the charity aims to make the town a safer and better place for people to live, to improve facilities and opportunities for the children through education and life skills for the better of the communities. Helen Newlove was given a peerage in recognition of all of this campaigning in 2010 and became Baroness Newlove with a seat in the House of Lords. 
And she said about this, I am just an ordinary woman propelled into high profile by a set of horrifying circumstances, which I wish with all my heart had never occurred. And I think, um, I mean, I saw her on TV fairly recently in the last two or three weeks, um, being interviewed and talking about the work that she still continues to do um, as a member of the House of Lords. And I think she's really active in that work because a lot of people with a peerage, particularly when it's like a hereditary peerage, do fuck all and they never show up and they never make a difference. Whereas, you know, she is very different. She, you know, it really is her life's work uh, to work on behalf of victims. So the work that she's done is absolutely outstanding. And um, I'm sure that I don't know, but I'm sure her charity is still up and running. And, you know, I'd encourage anybody to, to check it out. In 2012, she was also appointed as the Victims Commissioner. So that job kind of means she'll advise on areas of the criminal justice system that affects victims and witnesses. Um, I'm not sure if she still is to this day, but that ties in really well. Like, I'm sure she is. That's what's so important to her. Yeah, she is really passionate about campaigning on behalf of victims. And I think up until um, she began her work in that field, there was quite a bad reputation in the criminal justice system around how victims were treated. Um, So there'd been a lot of reforms, a lot of change uh, Mm -hmm. that she's helped to bring in in order to protect victims during that process. Yeah, she um, has said that she doesn't want her husband's life to have been in vain. And I remember at the time when we first recorded this, I just felt like that was so poignant. Yeah, absolutely. So to follow on a little bit, I did a little bit of background into the guys now. So where they are now and what's going on, because obviously they're still in prison at the moment. Um, So, you know, we were saying about Jordan Cunliffe at the time he was trying to appeal. In April 2019, his appeal was again um, rejected. He was still in um, April of 2019 denying that he had any involvement in Gary Newlove's murder. So his minimum sentence was due to expire in August 2019 because he had 12 years. But he is only going to be freed once the parole board is convinced that he poses no serious danger to society. And I feel like if he keeps denying what he's done, that may mean that he stays in for longer. It will do because the parole board will not agree to his release unless he um, shows remorse. Yeah. Um, So it kind of goes into a little bit more detail about him. But basically, if you can't prove for definite who inflicted the fatal blow, then that's why he was kind of convicted alongside the others. Um, and I don't know if we talked about this at the time as well, but I see, I feel like he was the one who was like, oh, I've got an eye condition, so I can't really see who kicked who. But they were kids really as well. So they're not going to be approaching their defence in inverted commas, because what defence? But they're not going to be approaching it with a logical, adult, mature brain. And they've got no brain anyway. No, but then they've got legal representation. So you'd think that the legal representation would... I suppose so, but it's it's probably just legal aid and like really shit solicitors. Not saying everybody that works on a legal aid basis is shit, but some of them are. Mm. Um. So yeah, there we go. The other two are just still in. Um, good. And that's that, which is good. I did like going back and kind of looking through what they were doing and just being like, good, they haven't been released early or something ridiculous like that. 
Yeah, because we do, we have had shocks where we've gone, um, where it's been, you know, uh, maybe a case that happened 10, 15 years ago. We've looked at it. We were perhaps aware about it at the time. We've then gone and done a deep dive into it. And we've had some shocks there when we've realized that, you know, maybe two years previous, uh, the perpetrator committed suicide in their cell or something like that. And we just didn't know about it because it wasn't necessarily widely reported at the time. So yeah. we have had some shocks, but no shocks here. Thank God they're all just still rotting in their jail cells, which is, yeah. is a good thing. Stephen Sorton, not for much longer, though, because his 17 years, no, was he 15 years? His 15, 15 years has been yeah. reduced by two years. So he is then 13 years, which this means year. this year he's due for parole. And I think he has actually been behaving and stuff. So from what I can see online, he will probably be out this year, but he seems to be reformed at least from what i've read in the news so that'll be interesting to kind of keep an eye on and i think that sparks another debate where we're talking about capital punishment for example also about prison as a tool of reform um do people deserve to be released once they've served their sentence even if it's a life sentence and they're showing remorse are they capable of being integrated back into society and contributing positively mm -hmm. you know lots of people will say absolutely not people never change others will say yeah they've served their time let them go out and you know give something back I, I kind of sit on the fence with it i think there's there's very few that are able to really um reform in prison when they've committed a, a terrible crime like this most you know do struggle then on the outside and mm -hmm. uh, return to prison for something at a, a later time which i think you covered recently where a guy was it last week's episode the guy um, killed someone in like 91 or something served time was released and then killed someone years later Yes, I know what you mean. So he was convicted, released, and then, yeah. I I do wonder, though, if it's our prison system, whether we don't deal with reform as much, whether our prison system is kind of set up as a punishment rather than reform. Yeah, I think so. I, I suppose it does depend on what prison you're at. Some are more mm -hmm. progressive than others, and they, they're kind of their own entity, a lot of the prisons. They've got regulation that that is imposed on all prisons in this country, but they can still run in you know their own way how they see fit. So some prisons will be much more focused on reform and better yeah. at that than others, for sure. I know, going completely off on a tangent, but if anybody listens to the podcast True Crime Sweden – um, Pernilla also often, like, she often talks about the fact that in Sweden, the punishment, the sort of like, um, jail time is a lot shorter than anywhere else in the world. But it's because they see it as reform rather than you don't stay in for years and years and years. They try and kind of rehabilitate people. And it's really interesting because their legal system is very different to ours in the UK. And I think for us, sometimes we, hear cases in sweden for example and we'd be like oh, that's really short but they'd be listening and they think wow that's really long so i guess it just depends on on your actual prison system and what you want to get out of punishment or reform yeah and i'm pretty sure that sweden has a very low reoffending rate do, so whatever they're yeah. doing is working however prison isn't just about reform it's also about uh, punishment so 
Um, I don't necessarily agree that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's another massive debate there as well. And we'll we'll again put something up on our Facebook page so that we can have a bit of a a heated debate in accordance with all of the admin rules um, around, you know, what we think (laughs) about capital punishment again, uh, if we want to touch on that again, but also about prison as a tool of reform, how effective it is at doing Mm. that, but also the balance between reform and punishment, what, what comes first, what's more important. Yeah. Because Adam at UK True Crime is a real, um, he's sort of talked a lot, hasn't he, about prison being for reform and that sort of thing. And he hates the idea of um, what like young offenders institutions, I think they're called, aren't they? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you found it when you were in one. (laughs) Um, You were in one, weren't you? Someone like you would have been, I'm sure. Um, so thank you for listening to this episode guys we hope you found it interesting and also I think it's quite inspiring in in regards to what Baroness New Love has achieved mm-hmm. um, since the, de- the death of her husband so um, let us know your thoughts on the case we hope it's killed half an hour for you no pun intended at all um, but we know these are difficult times so we hope every every one of you is staying safe and that you're well um, if you're bored reach out to us on all of our usual social media platforms you can find us on instagram facebook and twitter barely anybody ever gets in touch on twitter so um sometimes i put posts on there and don't get a single like um so please show me the love on twitter it's the only one of the social <laughs> you sound media so desperate yeah, i am because it's the only one i manage and it just obviously means that i'm really shit at managing them no so i the ones... i was no good at twitter when i used to try and yeah we, we really struggle do. with twitter if, if anybody wants to tip, tell us how to do it please yeah please yeah. let us know what you want on twitter but i really struggle with it so but yeah do get in touch with us in all the usual ways and um yeah we'll we'll see you soon bye bye